A white dwarf is starting to turn into a diamond. Another key element for life found in the plumes at Enceladus. And the Parker Solar Probe discovers the source of the fast solar wind. All this and more in this week's episode of Space Bites. I'm sure you've heard this saying before that white dwarfs are the largest diamonds in the universe. And this is theoretically true that a white dwarf, when it finally cools down, is a single crystallized block of carbon that had been put under high pressure. It's a diamond. And if you could get out there and you could find one and you could like bring it back to Earth, you would be well, you destroy the Earth, but you would be rich briefly. And so now astronomers have found what they think is a white dwarf that is going through this process of crystallizing into a diamond. So I'll explain what's going on here. So you've got a star main sequence star like the sun and in the core of the star you've got hydrogen being fused into helium. This can go on for billions and billions of years but eventually the star is going to run out of hydrogen in its core and it's going to move off the main sequence phase and start to become a red giant star. But it still has fuel in its core. Now it has helium and so it can start to fuse that helium into heavier elements, including carbon. And the sun will go through this process and it doesn't take long, just a few hundred million years. And then it has run out of usable helium in its core. Now it's just got this ash of carbon, and then it doesn't have enough temperature and pressure to continue this process. If you've got a star that's much, much more massive than the sun, then it can keep going, as we've said many times, all the way up to iron, and then you get a supernova, you get black holes. But with a mean sequence star like the sun, it just stops at carbon, and then it blows out its outer atmosphere into space, and you're left with the cooling down core of the star. Now, it's believed that a white dwarf star will take about 100 quintillion years to cool down to the background temperature of the universe. That's called the black dwarf. And until that point, you've got what was once the temperature of the fusing core of a star. And then eventually you've got the background temperature of the universe. And in that process, in the beginning, the interior, this carbon is essentially a liquid. And then over time, as it cools down, that liquid can eventually crystallize. Just sort of think about like sugar, liquid sugar in a bowl. You heat up the water, you put in sugar, you mix it up, you've got this sort of liquid. And then over time, the crystals start to form as the this sugar water solution cools down. And so astronomers think they've caught a white dwarf star that is right in that process of starting to crystallize. And in order to figure this out, you need to know the mass of the star because these white dwarfs could be different sized stars and the temperature and then that can tell you whether it's at that phase. So how did they find the mass of the white dwarf? Well, Gaia, of course, comes to the rescue. They found a system that had multiple stars, including one of them, which was a white dwarf. And whenever you have multiple stars interacting in a system, you can tease out the mass of the object. And then they were also able to determine the temperature of the white dwarf. And from that, they were able to calculate that it has entered the crystallization phase. So there's at least one of these gigantic diamonds starting to form. And if you ever want to become rich and also destroy the planet, you can figure out a way to go get it. Parker Solar Probe confirms the source of the fast solar wind. The solar wind is a stream of particles that's coming from the sun. And there are two kinds of solar winds. There's the slow solar wind, which is going a few hundred 
kilometers per second. And then there's the fast solar wind, which goes about 750 kilometers per second. And astronomers weren't entirely sure what is causing the fast solar wind on the sun. Because the problem is, is that the solar wind is somehow produced on the surface of the sun, then it goes through the corona, which is this region around the sun where the temperatures are vastly hotter, millions of degrees. And this mixes up and obscures the source of the fast solar wind. And this is one of the objectives of the Parker Solar Probe to find out where the fast solar wind is coming from. And with each orbit around the sun, it just keeps getting closer and closer. And on its most recent orbit, it came within 21 million kilometers of the sun. And that was close enough that astronomers could figure out what is causing the fast solar wind. So what Parker Solar Probe saw was that you've got these coronal holes that are opening up on the surface of the sun. And it's not like these are like, like pits that are opening up in the sun. They are regions where magnetic field lines are piercing out of the sun's surface. And these magnetic field lines will then connect and reconnect, disconnect, moving around the surface of the sun. And each time you get one of these disconnection, reconnection events, you get this blast of particles that are accelerated away from the sun. They go through the corona and then they fly out as the fast solar wind. And where this material is coming from depends on where the sun is on its 11 year cycles. It goes from the solar minimum to the solar maximum and then back to the solar minimum. And so they will be clustered around the poles at one point. And then as the sun's magnetic field gets more turbulent, then they'll move to the equator. And that's a time when we see a lot more of these sunspots around the surface of the sun. And then you get more of this fast solar wind that's coming out of the equator and that is directed more towards the Earth. But this is not as close as Parker is going to get. So I mentioned like it got within 21 million kilometers. And at the closest point, it should eventually get to within 6.5 million kilometers. So factor of four, so it's going to get a lot closer to the sun and hopefully with each flyby, gather more and more information and help astronomers understand this mystery, as well as other mysteries about the sun. Fighting satellite trails. When the Hubble Space Telescope first launched and began operations, there were about 500 satellites in the sky. And now there are about 8,000. And when Hubble first started, it was at a much higher altitude. And then over time, it's been slowly degrading in its orbit. And so more and more of the satellites that used to be below it are now above it. And so they are starting to pass through the trails. So astronomers estimate that a few percentage of every image taken by the Hubble Space Telescope has a satellite trail passing through. Now, most of the time, this isn't a problem because you're looking at a galaxy and the satellite trails over on the side. And so it's just not a big issue. But every now and then you get the satellite running right through your data right through the galaxy that you're trying to observe. And this is causing a problem for astronomers. Now, for those of you who've done any amateur astrophotography like me, uh, yeah, you get a satellite trail in one frame of your photographs, and you just throw it out. You're like, fine, like whatever, it's going to reduce the artistic quality of the picture that I'm taking. And so if I've taken 100 images and two have satellite trails, you just throw them out. Now you got 98 pictures, it's still good enough to make a very pretty picture. But for scientists, losing some of that data is a problem for their science. And in some cases, maybe you only get one shot at that. It's estimated that the Vera Rubin Observatory that is coming online later on this year is going to have about 
30% of its images impacted by satellite trails. So what can be done about this? Well, astronomers working with the Hubble Space Telescope have developed a new algorithm that allows them to process an image that had a satellite trail moving through it. As long as they have multiple images of the same region, they're able to extrapolate the missing data and they're able to remove the satellite trail and still get some of the data out of the image. And so the impact of the satellite trail is minimized. It's not zero, but it's less than it would be if they just left the trail in or they had to throw out the whole frame. And this technology will work for ground-based telescopes as well. So like this isn't great, you know, that that astronomers are having to deal with the impact of satellite trails on their photographs after the fact. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of solutions that could have been worked out in advance. Like if you make the satellites fly at a lower altitude, that would be better. They would be below the Hubble Space Telescope. They would also be in illumination for a shorter period of time during the orbit. The lower the altitude of the satellite is, the more quickly it passes into the shadow of the Earth and so then doesn't show up on your images, making them less reflective, making them point the solar panels away from the, the ground when they're making their pass over all of these would help. But the thing that would be the most important, the most helpful would be able to provide up to date, real time telemetry information on your satellite. And so if you know that a satellite is going to fly through your field of view, you just stop gathering your data for one one hundredth of a second, whatever it's going to take for that satellite just to move beyond where you're trying to capture your information and then start gathering information again. And so if you got a much better communication between the satellite operators and the astronomers, you could make most of this interference go away. And I really wish that these conversations were had before these giant mega constellations were launched because like I get having internet available to far flung communities around the world is very, very important. And being able to have astronomers gather data about the night sky is very, very important. And so if the two had just talked, then maybe we wouldn't find ourselves in the situation where we are now. Another key element for life found at Enceladus. We really need to go back to Enceladus. Like, it's just getting more and more important for the search for life in the solar system. Now, when NASA's Cassini spacecraft was in the Saturn system, it made a lot of flybys of Enceladus and it discovered that there are these cracks at the bottom of Enceladus that are spraying water ice out into space itself. And further analysis found that there's hydrogen gas dissolved into this water. And this is food for bacteria. So wherever we find hydrogen gas, liquid water on Earth, we get bacteria. And then astronomers were able to find that there are various organic molecules embedded within this material in the Cassini data as well. And so the latest research is that astronomers found that there is phosphorus in the form of phosphate dissolved into the oceans in Enceladus. And phosphorus, this is one of the key elements for life. Like when you go and you buy fertilizer for your garden, you're looking at the amount of carbon, nitrogen and phosphorus. Those are the big ones that matter. And you can't have DNA and RNA without phosphorus. And so one of the key elements for life on Earth, phosphorus now seems to exist on Enceladus too. 
So astronomers think that there are rocks at the bottom of the ocean on Enceladus that is being exposed to this ocean. And then the water is wearing this away and phosphorus is making its way from the rocks into the water, then from the water into the plumes and out into space where you could just fly by and just detect it. So what's the plan for sending a mission to Enceladus? There are none. Uh, there is no confirmed mission that's going to be flying to Enceladus. Now, there are a couple of ideas in the works right now. There's one called the Enceladus Orbilander, which would be an orbiter and lander that would attempt to fly through the plumes, maybe land a spacecraft near the plumes. But this is just a proposal that has not been accepted, is not in the works right now. So did I mention that we need to go back to Enceladus? Each week, we put up a list of all of the stories and you can vote for the one that you thought was the most interesting, most impactful, the one you're most excited about. And last week, the winner by a long shot was the fact that Betelgeuse has brightened unexpectedly. Like 51% of the voters thought that was the best story. And I agree. That's the one I would have voted for too. So after this week's episode, we'll put up a link to all of the stories and you can vote for the one that you like the best and give us feedback on what you're enjoying with these stories each week. The Tarantula Nebula shouldn't be forming stars, but it does. The Tarantula Nebula is in the Large Magellanic Cloud and it is the most impressive star forming region that we know of. It's ludicrously large. It is so dense with stars that if it was like the region of space around Earth, like imagine the distance from the Earth to Proxima Centauri, the closest star to the sun. There are no stars in that space. And yet if you were in the Tarantula Nebula, there would be tens of thousands of stars just clustered in that region alone. And this is a bit of a problem because all of those stars are blasting out enormous amounts of radiation. These are young, hot stars. Some of the most massive stars that have ever been found are in this nebula, and they're just throwing out so much radiation that they should be just blasting away all of the leftover star forming material. No new stars should be forming, and yet they do. What's going on? Well, Astronomers used data from the SOFIA Observatory. This is, of course, the flying infrared observatory that we weep about each time we bring it up uh, that is no longer flying. And it was able to map out the magnetic field lines in the nebula. And what they found is that what should be an incredibly chaotic environment is actually ordered thanks to these magnetic field lines, and they will channel gas and dust into very specific regions and hold the pressure in so that new stars can form as these bubbles are being created around other stars. The pressure is held high enough that you get new stars forming. And so it's amazing that like you get this order emerging out of this large chaotic environment of stars forming so that you get more and more star formation that normally you wouldn't expect to happen. And I like to wonder how what role did that play in the formation of the sun? Can you get more and more stars forming in a small region, thanks to these magnetic field lines? Yeah, I wonder, like, does life on Earth depend on this? A day on Earth used to be 19 hours long. Now you probably know that the moon 
is slowly drifting away from the Earth. And that is causing the day length of planet Earth to get longer and longer. Right now, a solar day, which is measured by when the sun returns to the same spot in the sky, takes 24 hours. But before the moon formed, a day on Earth was about four hours. And then some giant Mars-sized object crashed into the Earth and created the moon. And then as the moon drifted away, the day on Earth got longer and longer. But there's this weird mystery. It reached about 19 hours, and then it stalled for about a billion years. Astronomers call this the boring billion. And there are various techniques to measure out the day length on Earth. And there's a new technique that I really like. It, they use something called the Milankovitch cycle. And this is this orbital procession that the Earth is doing over tens of thousands of years. And it's a very long cycle. And so over eons of time, you can see its impact in how sedimentary layers are laid down on tidal flats, you get these, these sedimentary layers and the they measure the length of the day and you can see how often these sedimentary layers are laid down day after day after day over long periods of time. And so they found that the day length hit about 19 hours and then it stalled for about a billion years. Why? And so it appears that you've got sort of two forces that are in tension that were causing the day length on Earth. One is the solar radiation coming from the sun, which was heating up one side of the Earth, the one that's in facing the sun, and that would speed up the Earth's rotation. And we talked about this last week in the question show with the Yarkovsky effect, York, things like that. And then you've got the interactions, the tidal interactions with the moon that are slowing the Earth's rotation down. And you got to this point where these two forces were sort of held in check with each other. And you've got this billion years of stability in the Earth's rotation rate. And then the forces from the moon won out and we shifted over into this now 24 hour period. And I think that's really interesting is that this time this boring billion matches when life on Earth really arose. So from 2.5 billion years to 541 million years ago. So was this period of stability necessary for the rise of life on Earth? Who knows, but it's an interesting idea. Of course, we need to wrap up this episode with some cool videos and images. And so the first one I want to share with you is a transit of the International Space Station passing in front of the sun, captured by Thierry Legault. And Thierry is a Parisian astronomer, one of my favorites, like if you do a search on the universe today for Terry Legault's images, we must have dozens at this point. Um, he can't take a picture without us watching over his shoulder and like, what you shooting there. Um, and so in this image, what he did was he calculated exactly when and where the International Space Station was going to pass in front of the sun. And you can do this yourself. You, there's a place called Transit Finder that you can do a calculation and find out when. You can see transits in front of the sun. You can see transits in front of the moon. I've done this. The problem is that you don't know if you get your shot because you 
at the nighttime, usually the International Space Station is already going to be in shadow. And so you see a full moon and then you just record video of the full moon at the appropriate time. And then you have to check your images later on to see if you got it. Same thing with like you can't see the International Space Station during the daytime. It's just that when it is passing in front of the sun with the right solar filters, you can see it. And this is what Terry saw. Now, he went one step farther, which is that he captured this transit when there were two astronauts outside the International Space Station doing a spacewalk. And so you've got this image of the space station passing in front of the sun when astronauts are doing a spacewalk. It's amazing. And the second picture was taken by Curiosity. Now, Curiosity is, of course, on Mars. It's climbing up the slopes of Mount Sharp. Now, this is a five kilometer tall mountain. Like, it won't reach the summit of Mount Sharp. Or will it? I hope so but it probably won't. Anyway, uh, so it's exploring a region called the Marker Band Valley. And this is thought to be an ancient lake bed on Mars. Very fascinating, rich in sulfates, the kind of place that would have clues for the formation of life on Mars if it ever happened. And sort of to finalize its exploration of this region, the scientists at NASA had it take two pictures, one just after dawn and one just before sunset. And photographers know that if you take images, just as the sun is low in the sky, you get these really dramatic shadows, one of the most useful times to recognize and see interesting features on the surface of Mars. So this wraps up one big chunk of Curiosity's exploration, and now it's going to move on to its next target and continue its science operations, but it's still going strong. So good luck, Curiosity. Hello, audio listeners. Fraser here. Uh, I just want to take a second and chat with you briefly about how you can help us create the content that we make here as an audio podcast. And like, I'm a huge fan of audio podcasts. I started Astronomy Cast with Dr. Pamela Gay like 15 years ago, and I mostly just listen to podcasts. I don't really watch a lot of video. And one of the cool things about the podcast is that we don't have any external advertising at all. Like when we have YouTube, they insert ads into our videos. But here on the podcast, we don't need to have any. And so there's really no advertising at all in the podcast that you're listening to. And that's very different from a lot of other podcasts that will stop and give you an ad for a VPN or a better way to sleep. And we like that. I think that makes the content more pure, makes it more available to an educational audience without having to have all that commercial stuff put in. But we have to pay the bills, of course. And the way we do it, the way we've chosen is with Patreon. And that allows a fairly small group of people to support the work that we do so that we can release it to a very large audience, but without having to put a lot of ads into it, which, you know, if you're playing this in a classroom and you need to have your students listen to the ad, that's not great. So if you can afford it, and if you want to help us create the work that we do, please come and join our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash universe today. You will continue to get all of the ad-free stuff that you already do. You will also get some behind-the-scenes stuff. You'll get no ads from the Universe Today website for life, even if you stop becoming a patron. So go to patreon.com slash universe today. All right, those are all the stories that we had today. Of course, we're going to have links to everything we talk about down in the show notes. And when you see the vote come up, please vote for the story that you like the best. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. 
I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word, there are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to just Paul Davis, Vlad Shipplin, Jay Dennis, David Giltan, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us. All right, that was all the news that we had today. We'll see you next week.